0: Hey, it's Jay, and I think a lot about all the parts and pieces that make up a story. Whether or not you're telling an end-to-end narrative, as with so many of the narrative podcasts that we've featured on this show, or you're just talking to somebody and trying to lead them from where you started to where you want them to be by the very end. There's so many things that you have to keep straight, and sometimes it comes really naturally, and other times, not so much. Now you add in the meaning that we imbue to stories, the emotion, And as is the case with our guest today, the turmoil, the tragedy, the mystery, and the questions of it all. And so as tactfully as we can today, what I wanted to explore was how to tell a really tough story and a very intriguing one at that. One that lends itself to a lot of entertainment value. One that's very gripping. How you tell that kind of story using your skills, your craft, your abilities as a communicator and a podcaster while still at the same time, having such an emotional tie to what you're building. Oh, oh, oh! Uh, one more thing, and what if it's your first podcast ever? Welcome to Three Clips, where podcasters take us inside their process, a few pieces at a time. I'm Jay Akunzo, and this is a Castos Original Series. As always, our goal today is to help demystify the creative process behind great podcasts and to inspire greater creativity in your work. To help us, today, we're going to learn from Chris Stedman of Unread. Unread is a narrative podcast. It only runs four episodes long, and it runs just under four total hours. Exploring a rather rough topic that I did want to be transparent about, there is some discussion uh, about suicide and some tough topics involving mental health, but we're going to talk about those elements as they also connect to something really surprising, a lot less conventional, and something you just sort of didn't see coming inside the story, which actually does kind of make sense for this particular program, which describes itself as a show which is about looking for answers in the digital breadcrumbs people leave behind. Again, the host is Chris Stedman, who's a Minneapolis-based writer, speaker, and professor who currently teaches in the Department of Religion and Philosophy at Augsburg University. He's the author of a couple of books, IRL and Faithiest, and he's written for publications like The Guardian, The Atlantic, BuzzFeed, Pitchfork, Vice, CNN, The Washington Post, and a lot more. His show, Unread, was named as one of the best podcasts of 2021 by Vulture and podcast Pick of the Week. And as Ashley Lusk of the Bellow Collective wrote, it'll stare right into the heart of every millennial who lived and loved online as a story about grief and friendship and fandom and the multitudes we contain, both in real life and online. You might be wondering, so what is the show about? And unlike in lots of our episodes, I'd like to tell you directly because there's so much to keep in mind before we head into this interview with Chris, that I think it's important that I just tell you the premise directly. Here we go. One December evening in 2019, Chris Stedman noticed a new message in his inbox from his friend Alex, sent at exactly 7pm. He and Alex hadn't talked in a while. Was Alex writing to tell him off for being a bad friend? But it wasn't that. Listen, the note read, I am writing to let you know that when you receive this scheduled email, I will no longer be alive. At the bottom of his message, Alex included a link to a private SoundCloud account. Here's Alice recordings, he wrote. Alice. Alex had talked to Chris about her before. A Britney Spears superfan, Alex had befriended this anonymous figure in a Britney fan forum years earlier. Alice had become the stuff of legend in Britney fan circles, and for good reason. She happens to sound exactly like Britney herself. Why was Alex including these recordings in his goodbye email? Who was Alice, really? And what had she meant to Alex? More importantly, could she help Chris understand why his friend was gone? With the help from Alex's loved ones, Chris decided to track down the elusive Alice in the hopes that she can answer some of the questions Alex couldn't. Alright, so we are going to break down a few pieces of Unread to learn a little bit more about how the production came together But before we do that, let's first meet the host and creator, Chris Stedman. I would love to know when you decided to turn a very personal experience into a show, or did it start as some other creative exercise that dovetailed into the show? So, how did it go from something you experience to something you would create and tell the world?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, the thing for me about writing—and this is my first podcast—like I think a lot of people in podcasting, I—I I didn't plan to be a podcaster. I'm sort of an accidental podcaster. <laughs> yep, same. You know, for me, writing uh, is something that I do to try to like make sense of things that feel really big and complicated. I think it was Flannery O'Connor once said, I write to figure out what I know. And that's very true for me. Like writing is a process of trying to sort and make sense of things that feel really big and messy and hard to understand. And oftentimes that process is really just for me. Like a lot of the writing I do never sees the light of day. It's just an exercise for me to kind of figure out what I think about something. I published a book in 2012 and then I didn't publish another one until 2020, which is like any literary agent will tell you, that's a a big mistake. (laughs) But it's because, you know, I really only share my writing if I feel like there's, you know, some sort of value in doing so beyond just something I'm processing for my own self. So Unread is about the, the death of my friend Alex and After he died, I was doing what I always do, which is, you know, writing and and reflecting and trying to make sense of what happened. And I started to wonder if there might be some value in sharing some of what I was exploring and reflecting on. Well, there were sort of two moments. One I talk about in the show, which is when I was talking with his best friend and I sort of like made a joke about making a podcast, trying to figure out this mystery he left behind. And I'll kind of like toss something off as a joke, almost because I don't want to give myself permission to actually entertain the idea. And she very much was like, you should do it. You should actually like consider this. And then the second moment when I sort of found myself wondering whether or not this might be a story that where there would be some value in sharing it more broadly was after my friend Alex died, I ran an online fundraiser to try to cover some of the costs related to his death and i wanted to be really open about you know how he died which was by suicide and so i just very sort of plainly explained that when sharing the fundraiser and i heard from a number of people who just said like thank you for saying how he died Mm -hmm. and after his death it became super clear to me that there's this huge culture of silence around suicide and the sort of only narratives that we hear about suicide are really focused on the sort of details of the death and, you know, the stories of both the person who died and what their life was like and the stories of those who are sort of left to grapple with that, you know, we don't hear as much of. And so that was part of why I started wondering if, you know, because I felt like as I was trying to make sense of what happened with Alex and his death there just weren't other stories that I could turn to. And so, you know, that was another piece of why I decided I started to feel like maybe this would be something I would share more broadly.
0: Why either pitch it to or work with uh, uh, iHeart for the show? I think when I hear that explanation, I think, and this is just my want as the way I've created different shows is to go independent. And there's this like looming fear, perhaps, that I haven't really pitched a big network or other company maybe outside of brands that I've worked with, because I started as a marketer, I haven't really tried to pitch a story or a series or an open-ended show to an organization like iHeart. Why did you think to do that for this particular story?
1: It started to become clear to me that if I wanted to tell this story, a podcast really was the medium that made the most sense because the mystery that my friend left behind after he died was like, it it was presented to me in audio form. So he sent me an email that he scheduled to go out after his death letting me know of his decision and explaining, you know, why he had done it and letting me know that, you know, he loved me and and all of that but then at the end of it he included a link to a private SoundCloud page with a couple of audio files of him talking to someone he had met on a Britney Spears fan forum who sounded just like Britney herself. Everything else in the email, you know, the email of course was just gut-wrenching and horrifying and as i was working on the show obviously i had to go back to the email over and over again and and that was just very difficult to do i can be pretty avoidant (laughs) in general as a topic for my therapy session not this (laughs) podcast but anyway so the the email was was horrible, but I could understand like he really carefully explained things in the email. But then at the end was he dropped this link to these audio files and didn't really give any explanation for it. He just kind of dropped them in at the end. I just couldn't understand why. Like, I just kept coming back to these files and trying to understand, like, what was he trying to show me here? What was this about? just thinking about trying to describe those audio files like in the written word it just felt impossible because you really have to hear them to understand why i was so taken by them and you know also like so much of our relationship was like he sent me videos audio files all this stuff all the time like that that just was uh, so much of how our relationship played out and so as I was thinking about how I might sort of tell this story, a podcast just seemed like the right medium for it. But the I have you know I have some background in audio, like I, I've done some radio here and there. But I the technical know how is just totally beyond me. I was like, I really don't think that like if I if I am going to do this, I really want to do it justice, and I want to do it as well as I can, and so I want to work with people who have some expertise that I don't. You know, I also, like, I've never worked with a company of the size of iHeart. Both of my books were published by indie presses. My career has been really independent. I have a a strong aversion to and, and fear of working with larger companies. Honestly, I don't think it would have happened if I hadn't had the conversations that I had with the executive producer at iHeart, who I ended up working with, Bethann Mekaluso, and hadn't really felt that they were going to completely support my vision. Not mm-hmm. in the sense that, like, I wanted the team to challenge and give input and make it stronger, but I definitely felt incredibly protective about how the story was told and. Even once I'd sort of created it, how it would be handled and, you know, sort of brought into the world, I had sort of at every step in the process, anytime I had a question or a fear or concern, it was honored and respected. And so, you know, that really both the sort of two things that made me feel like, okay, I could go ahead and, and pursue this partnership is A, they had the expertise and resources to help me make this show that I wanted to make and to do justice to this story that I just couldn't do on my own. And two, I felt that they were they totally supported and understood my hopes for the project and weren't going to even subtly try to pressure me to make it anything other than what I wanted it to be.
0: For a lot of our listeners, having some kind of agreement in place with a bigger network or media company like an iHeart is kind of their white whale as a podcaster. And so you mentioned that this wouldn't have come together without the relationship being the way it was. How do you even start that relationship? You know, are you going cold with a pitch deck to explain this? Are you advertising a big following online? Like what, it's a bit of a black box for a lot of people. And, you know, I'm wondering if you could shed a little bit of light on that
1: process. Gosh, I would love to, (laughs) I think I'm probably not a great person to like give advice here because honestly, I, I, Cold pitched Beth Ann just over Twitter. (laughs) I just, you know, sent her a message and said, you know, I have this idea for a possible show. I don't know if it would even work, you know, but I would love to just talk about it. And, you know, Beth Ann, like, I just have to give her so much credit because she just really, from the beginning, believed in the project and advocated for it. I just talked to the exact right person. I have definitely have a lot of experience pitching like i i write freelance pieces all the time and you know for every person you hear back from you don't hear back from 200 people right yeah so i i definitely understand that and this was just one of those moments where i have i happen to have a friend his name is josh Lindgren, and he's a podcast agent at caa and like we just happen to be friends You know, again, another sort of like very fortunate circumstance that I happen to be friends with, a podcast agent. And I just asked him if he'd be willing to get coffee when I was sort of in the very beginning, when I was first thinking about this project. And I was like, you know, I just want to talk about this idea. And, you know, given your expertise in podcasting, like I'm fully prepared for if you say like this is not a good idea or this wouldn't work or whatever, like I'm I'm fully prepared to let it go and just. Do what I always do with my writing that isn't, you know, a, that doesn't, isn't something that I end up sharing, just sort of continue to do it for my own sake. Yeah. And he really encouraged me and was supportive. But again, I didn't really work with him like as my agent when I was pitching the show. I just sort of reached out and didn't have a pitch deck, any of those things that like, yeah, you n- normally have when you enter into this kind of process. It was really just a conversation that I had with Beth Ann.
0: My favorite part of that answer is that you were like, I don't know if I have any good advice, but here's some really good advice. Uh,
1: that's so, I, I'm I'd so glad you hear things. advice in there.
0: <laughs> I, I would pull out two things. I would like the first is, cause I have asked that similar question to other people before. I, you know, you... You shot your shot. I mean, first and foremost, you were able to, you were willing to reach out. And yes, I'm seeing on Twitter, a blue check, you know, close to (laughs) 27,000 followers. Like there are things you can leverage, but that everyone has something they can leverage. Maybe it's not that, but you did reach out. And then even though it was somebody who was kind of in the industry that you were talking to, I still hear from a lot of podcasters who think they have an idea for a show and they think it deserves to be, you know, optioned or purchased or, or syndicated somewhere, but they haven't told enough people about it to like pressure test the idea. Sure. So that's the other thing I'd pull out is you were, you were talking about it, which of course refines the idea and helps you not only sharpen how you communicate it, but I'm sure informs how you create it. So absolutely. don't sell yourself short there, Chris. I think there's <laughs> some good advice in there. Thanks. The So let's move to the clips so we can hear some of the show that you put together once you were a part of that team. The three clips we're pulling from, we're going to actually mix things up from past episodes a little bit. We're going to have one clip from episode one, one clip from episode two, one clip from episode three, and encourage people to finish the series on their own. No spoilers in this show. So episode one is titled Email My Heart. These first three episodes were published, by the way, June 9th. 2021 just to give some context to you the listener so in episode one at this moment before the clip fans you're talking not about your friend's death you're talking about britney spears so there's there's a bit of a twist people should listen Britney Spears plays heavily into this series. So a little bit of context. Fans were drawn to Britney during 2007 when she was treated as this kind of shared cultural and sacrificial joke in regards to a very serious mental health crisis. And her fans, however, understood her and felt her pain. And then there's this figure looming over your story named Alice. Um, Can you just quickly explain how you were first introduced to Alice, who is... She her voice sounds eerily like Britney Spears, but how were you introduced to Alice before we hear the clip, Chris?
1: Again, you know, everything in the email was shocking, but also understandable. Like he really explained his decision and what happened pretty clearly, but but then he sort of dropped these files at the end, this link to these two audio files of him talking to This Britney sound-alike he had met on a Britney Spears fan forum, you know, almost a decade earlier with no context. Almost like this sort of little, like, invitation down the rabbit hole with him. He had told me about this person, Alice, who had sort of appeared in the early 2010s in these Britney Spears fan spaces online, who sounded just like Britney herself. You know, he told me about her at the time that he had first connected with her. But I sort of just like, you know, I was like, oh, that's so interesting. And so, but I, you know, I didn't really give it a ton of thought. And so when I saw these clips in the email, I just was like, what the? Like, I I couldn't understand it because I had thought it was just this sort of strange, funny thing that had happened a decade earlier. And this made me wonder if there was more to the story. So let's go to the clip. The prospect that Alice and Brittany were one in the same would have been thrilling. Here, perhaps, was a chance to connect with the unreachable star that they felt they already knew. Even I have to admit, Alice sounds just like brittany The light vocal fry, the playful candor, every word, almost like a wink.
2: If I ever said her name, y'all would flip out, I know.
1: I continued listening to the audio. At one point, the other people in the chat room with Alice begin discussing the rumors that under her strict conservatorship, more on that in a minute, Britney doesn't have access to a phone or computer, an idea that's persisted among many Britney fans for years.
2: It's perhaps she would. knows how to use a
1: computer. Uh I think Britney knows how to use a, right? like I don't a think computer. Br- like. She doesn't have a cell phone and she
0: doesn't have a computer. I'm sure she has, like, a MacBook or
1: something. Listening to this clip, it's strange to hear them talk about Brittany as if she isn't there. Well, at the same time knowing some of them think, or at least hope, that Alice is Brittany. It's like they're trying to wink and nudge her into confessing who she is. The pokes almost work. Alice clears her throat in that clip, like she wants to correct them, or just remind them that she's still there, listening. But the winks and nudges continue. So, Alice, do people ever think you're Brittany, like, when you're just out and about on your daily routine? Do they think you're Brittany ever? Alice doesn't take the bait, though.
2: No, because I don't look like her at all. <laughs> so.
0: so, I just want to plant this a little bit more firmly in a listener's mind here. The story had started, this is episode one, the story had started talking about Alex's death. And I think we had this idea of where this was going. And then there's this section, and, and it starts what seems like a bit of a tangential plot about Alice, about Britney Spears. And I think when we, when we shape narratives, Chris, like there's all these asides and details and moments and characters that support the main thrust of the narrative. And those need to somehow be introduced and developed to some degree, but they can go too far and become a tangent or, you know, derail the core narrative. And what I noticed throughout your series is you're so good at those things. Like the Britney and Alice stuff it, act, it starts out that way and becomes something more, of course, but even like in the finale episode, you have this quick jump in the first half to discussing a roller coaster and its importance to the story. And it's seamless because you're sort of popping all around, but I never lose sight of what the core narrative is. And you're always able to tie it back. How, how do you, do you recognize that you do that? Do you, do you, how do you think about those moments and balancing, balancing all these threads with like the one core narrative you're trying to tell?
1: Well, first, uh, thank you. You, I think you never really know when you're working, like when you're so immersed in a project, you're like, okay, I think this is starting to make sense. It's starting to come together, but like, will it for other people? (laughs) And that's one of the benefits of being able to work with a team of people because you're not the only one sort of immersed in it. And can you describe
0: the team? Just so people know, you mentioned team a couple of times, like who...
1: Yeah. Yeah. So my executive producer, Beth Ann at iHeart, who really, sh- you know, shepherded this project and was incredibly hands on. I believe at the time we were making Unread, it was like the only show she was working on because she does a lot of development for them now at this point. But she stayed with us on our project, which I'm really grateful for. And then we brought on a story editor named Aaron Edwards, who's not an iHeart person. I wrote the first episode basically on my own, you know, before I was really working with the team, you know, that was part of what, like, that just emerged from Beth Ann and I were talking, and, you know, she was, she asked if I felt I could start sort of working on a possible first episode, and and I did, and it was very helpful in terms of, you know, getting me sort of in the mindset of what the show was. Then, you know, I sort of proceeded with doing all of the investigating and interviewing and everything that you hear throughout the show, and so then I just had... this tape and i i tried to write some scripts from it and but it was there's just as you say there's a lot of different threads in the show and i really wanted it to all come together and to not sort of lose sight of what the ultimate sort of central story of the show is which you know you sort of hear the first episode and you might think that it's about this sort of alice mystery and it is that is kind of what like i take you on this search I ultimately go on for this person to see if I can find this this person that Alex had been talking to but really ultimately the show is about Alex and about our friendship you know that we all have heard series that like really stretch out every little <laughs> every little twist and turn in order to you know make the show sort of last as long as possible and I really wanted this to be a tight show in part as you say to sort of never lose sight of what it was ultimately about and I just felt like I was having a hard time, you know, in part because it's such a personal story. There was n- no way for me to like emotionally divorce myself from it and and kind of like step back and take a quote unquote objective look at the narrative. And so, you know, I, I said ultimately I'd like to bring in someone who can help me make sense of the narrative a little bit. And Aaron, was just absolutely the perfect person for that. Um, Just has such a great sense of story. And while Aaron was very emotionally invested in the story because he was a part of the team, he also could be a little bit more of an objective voice and, and kind of step back and say like, You know, because he helped me see, like, so our process was very involved. Like, I wrote scripts, and then he would take time to really slowly go through the script, and then we would hop on Zoom and spend, like, four hours walking through the script together. Like, he was, as I said, very hands-on. And, you know, that helped me see, like, okay, here's a place where I'm doing a lot of emotional processing, which is important to the story, but also, like, 90% of this is for me, and here's the 10% that is actually sort of helpful in you know for the listener to help them understand what's going on.
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah we you know working with Beth Ann and Aaron they were sort of the like two primary people when it came to the kind of story, but then, you know, as you know, also sort of essential to the podcast is the the music and the sound design. And I again had the opportunity to work with some really incredible folks. Dylan Fagan did the sound design you know, I, that for me was like a new part. I've never told a story in audio before. And so I just found it so expansive to be able to think about like, oh, what if we brought in this sound here and, and how that sort of, you know, I'm so used to trying to express something through words and having to describe it and actually being able to kind of take that pressure off and, and say like, oh, here, the sound can step in. Helped me kind of get out of my own way with the writing of the show and then Aaron Wong-Kaufman, we had two Aarons on the show, so we had to start uh, using last (laughs) initials. But Aaron Wong-Kaufman did the music, and then we brought in a couple of outside musicians because we wanted to do some variations on the theme throughout and also just bring in some different musical elements. So Ben Saratan and Sadie Dupuy of Sad 13 also created some really wonderful music for the show. And again, just having this whole team of people who maybe even, you know, like, Aaron Wong Kaufman, Ben, Sadie, they weren't working on the sort of narrative, but they were were helping me think about how do we tell this story and just having multiple people involved in the process just, I think for me, it was really helpful because, you know, so often when I write, I'm just sort of in my own head with it. And it's easy when you're in your own head to kind of get sucked into a a tangent or a sidebar and working with other people just kept me really focused on this is a story that I am trying to share with other people with the hope that it will that there's some value in doing so. And and so, yeah, just working with others, I think helped me with that.
0: Yeah, and I always, I mean, it's, it can be disheartening for someone who's an independent or is running a leaner operation to, to hear all those people and, and sort of wish they were in that position. But I, I tell everybody, you know, the temptation is to start offloading bits and pieces that annoy you, perhaps. Like perhaps the first thing an independent podcaster looks for is an audio engineer. Finding a producer who can think like an editor or an actual editor, even if it's just a friend, just the story structure, the moments that are missing, you know, whether or not you've raised the stakes enough to grip people. Like these are the missing elements that when we become so close to a story, you know, everything is at once the worst moment or the best moment we've ever compiled. And so we need to get out of our heads and have somebody examine it. And so that that's where I encourage people to start if they're if they're hearing that description.
1: Absolutely.
0: I want to move to the second clip and this is coming from the second episode as well. And so the first episode, of course, you're doing a lot of, you know, setting the stakes and introducing characters, which I know is a delicate dance because we say characters when we're in production mode, but they're, they're people in our lives. They're people we love or loved that we're trying to somehow squeeze, you know, a lifetime into an intended runtime, which can be difficult. And I have a question after this clip along those lines, but just to set the scene a little bit, the context that we need to know here is Alex wrote letters to many of his friends before his suicide, which led to these friends forming a group, a group of people who had no real reasons for ever meeting other than being Alex's friends. And as they became friends, it was kind of like Alex's family surrounding himself and then his memory. It's such a difficult thing to translate so many emotions, such a personal experience, a difficult experience, and human relationships even in general, however pithy and fun or serious and somber it might be. Into an audio moment and then narrate it with your voice somehow representing all that Chris And so that's what this clip represents and why we pulled it. So let's go to
1: that clip From what I've been able to gather Alex sent out at least a dozen emails to friends and family and also left a note saying There were many others. He couldn't summon the ability to write notes to but who he wanted to know were loved to Each of us who did get an email got a piece of what felt like a disjointed story, tailored to our connection with him. It was like Alex's last act was to disperse little fragments of himself across the world, and we could only piece together the full story by finding one another. First, an email thread began with all of us who got notes, where we swapped stories about Alex. Then, a smaller crew started a group chat almost by accident initially to coordinate around planning a meetup in California and share some updates on Alex's memorial in Chicago where his mom lives. Before long, the six of us in this group chat were talking so often that we gave ourselves a name, Team Thor Daniels, a pseudonym Alex sometimes used online. I wanna offer some of their pieces of Alex's story with you, the ways he helped them find their voice too.
0: I most notice the tone that you take and even subtly shift when you're you know literally performing a script and recording it and the way you're able to control and use your voice to match the moment like there was a subtle shift there from introducing the fact that Alex had scheduled these emails had written letters had talked to people or was still sort of talking to them even after he was gone to you're coming together it feels a little bit more warm cuz you're you're bonding over shared experiences and memories of Alex that's a difficult thing to master. And you mentioned it's your first podcast. How did you approach the voice performance of this all? Like, how did you master that?
1: Oh, gosh, that was like, um, that was a thing I was really afraid of, like doing the actual narrating. Because yeah, it was brand new for me. I've like, I haven't narrated my audiobooks, anything like that. <laughs> I did a, a, a sort of initial rough take where I just read through the script and I tried to, you know, sort of read it as best as, as I could, not just sort of like, just read it in a monotone, blah, blah, blah. But it was really just so that we could kind of hear how it sounds. And then, you know, if there were things that weren't working or things that needed to be addressed in terms of the content of the script, you know, it, it's helpful to hear it. And then we would do a second recording where I would actually be on like on Zoom with both Dylan, the sound producer, and with Beth Ann, the executive producer. and we were all in different time zones, so we, it was poor Beth Ann, it was always like super early in the morning for her, and I would just read it and i I would have to like minimize the zoom because i did not want to see myself or them (laughs) we would just sort of check in about how it was going and sometimes they would coach me a little bit in terms of being like you know that felt a little low energy or something you know i mean probably that was the biggest note i got because you can probably hear in just me talking now. I can be a little bit monotone in my speaking sometimes. <laughs> you know, we had some days where we were recording, and I had a million things going on that day, and I was stressed about X, Y, and Z. But it really didn't take a, a ton of effort to like get to access the emotions and again I can be like a very compartmentalizing person emotionally it's like a quote unquote survival skill that I've developed like living in the world that we live in and needing to like even on a bad day if I'm having a hard time like oh I need to go to work still and teach and so that that can often like create emotional blockages for me It's easy for me to like suppress my emotion. I'm also from the upper Midwest and like I'm very stereotypically Minnesotan. So it's easy for me to just shove those emotions down.
0: In our third final clip, it's definitely a step aside uh, or away from the core emotion of it. I I shouldn't say it that way. It definitely serves the core story. But we're once again going to visit some Britney related material and. The question I want to ask you afterwards is kind of how you, how you kept moving between those two things. But uh, this is a very specific and very famous moment. When people hear this, a lot of people might recognize it. But the context is uh, YouTuber Chris Crocker had shared a video in the height of the Britney sort of public shaming, pleading for other people to, and this is the famous quote, leave her alone, leave Britney alone. And then you make sense of that with a second person. So let's hear that clip.
1: The demand to honor Britney's dignity first gained major notice with Chris Crocker's iconic Leave Britney Alone rallying cry. Her song is called Give Me More for a Reason because all you people want is more, 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 more! Leave her alone! Crocker may have been roundly mocked at the time, but that cry is actually what got me to start paying attention to her humanity. While many of us were late to Crocker's party, a lot of people are there now. For many attendees though, especially the most ardent ones, it's not just about Britney's dignity, but also their own.
2: I think gay men are still reflexively used to indirect representation. Like you're still, all all boys are taught to stifle their emotions and push their feelings down and never be sad and never be vulnerable. You gotta stuff all that shit down. And so where 50 years ago, gay men were attracted to over the top actresses, because that was like a way to launder emotion. It was like, you can, you can, ha- I can't have my emotions, but you can have them for me, and I can like kind of feel it along with you. I think she was a little bit that for young gay men. I don't think I understood the depth of people's connection and devotion to and with her, like until I started seeing the Free Britney movement. And it's really, it is felt very deeply.
0: So before I get to my main question, who is that second voice?
1: Yeah. So that's, uh, Dave Holmes, uh, former MTV VJ, a uh, video jockey, <laughs> uh, for those not familiar with the lingo,
0: <laughs> that's a delineating, that's a, that's a way to find your, your people, right? If you can walk up to someone and say VJ yeah. and you go, oh yeah, I know what that means. That's like, okay, cool. We grew up together.
1: Yeah, exactly. And yeah, he was one of a few people I reached out to while making the show to try and bring in some perspectives that could help me, you know, make sense of these different threads. So, you know, after Alex died, um, honestly, I don't think I would have made this show if at the same time as I was trying to understand why Alex sent me these audio files of him talking to a Britney sound alike he met in a Britney fan forum. The Free Britney movement hadn't been sort of like Coming to mainstream attention at the same time because it, it came became this sort of backdrop for my questions. Like, anytime I would find my mind wandering away from the files, the Free Britney movement would like bring me right back to it. And, um, you know, Alex was like, as I, you know, talk about in the show, Alex was the Br- biggest Britney Spears fan you'll ever meet. She was everything to him, and he identified with her like on this very personal level as someone who, you know, he struggled with mental health and he was someone who was like the center of attention, the light of everyone's lives, the life of the party, but also he struggled greatly with depression. And I think he felt like there were people in his life who, you know, loved him when he was the life of the party, but couldn't understand that he also had these struggles. And I think he identified with Britney Spears being like this person who is absolutely amazing at what she does, who is a, a true superstar, but also has these very real human struggles. You know, my own interest in Britney, like I was not a Britney fan when she first came out, mostly, honestly, due to like internalized homophobia. I was like, I can't be seen liking this thing that might make me seem gay. So anything like that, I I, I was kind of averse to. But really, it was the time of 2007 when Britney was going through some very public struggles that I found myself starting to sort of empathize more with her, and it's embarrassing to admit that it took, you know, her having difficult experiences for me to like start to see her as more of a human being. But unfortunately, I'm a, a flawed person. Yeah, aren't we all? Well, one of the, the thing I want
0: to ask you was, you know, I hear the phrase. And it's a new one to me, and perhaps this is either ignorance or privilege, or maybe it was a new insight in general, this phrase laundering emotion. Had you heard people say that before Dave Holmes said it?
1: Dave and I connected because, as someone who was an MTV VJ at the time of the rise of Britney and also like who has thought a lot about masculinity and the experience of gay men, you know, I wanted to talk to him because there are a lot of gay men who do identify with Britney and Alex was one of them. So, you know, the show ultimately, like part of what it becomes is this exploration of stand culture these communities of really ardent fans, in this case, fans of Britney Spears, who not only really sort of identify with their beloved star, but also form communities around that person, communities like the online space where Alex met this person, Alice, who I end up sort of trying to find and and understand what the nature of their relationship was.
0: Our last segment does not contain a clip, and typically we talk about how you'll reinvent the show from here, but being that this is a contained story that you told, I'm wondering how this experience will change not just you, the person, because of course this relates to your relationships in your life, but as you take this experience with you as a creative, as a storyteller, as a teacher, how do you think this will affect your creative work moving forward? Because ultimately that's what we're
1: exploring here on the show. We're just in a really interesting time because there are so many different ways that we can tell stories now. And I think that in a lot of ways, you know, part of what has drawn me to the written word is that there are things about it that feel safe. Like I can feel a little bit more removed from the reader. I get to create this written word in my own little bubble and then I put it out into the world and they experience it, you know, on their own. And with the podcast, it's not that I'm not present in my own writing either. I definitely am. I, I use personal narrative in my my writing. But with this, yeah, you hear my voice. And it felt, you know, very vulnerable to make the show and then to engage with people once it's out. And it, it, obviously, it continues, even though, as you say, the, the plan was always just to sort of make these four episodes. You know, we haven't foreclosed on the possibility that if there's more story to tell that we would tell it but we're not seeking out (laughs) you know that opportunity but the story continues to live on as people encounter it and engage with it and that continues to change the way that i think about story it's been incredibly beautiful uh, to hear from so many people who have connected with the story to hear about their own struggles with suicidality to hear about their love for the their own alex's in their lives to hear from people who have just yeah, wanted for there to be more open conversation about suicidality and for there to be more stories about it that, again, don't sort of put the entire focus on the fact that this person died in this particular way. That doesn't shy away from it, but also, you know, there's some really well done true crime. I I enjoy some true crime, but we are very much living in a true crime time where there's a lot of focus on that aspect of stories around death. Death touches all of us and to be able to talk about it and the stories of death in other kinds of ways, I think is super important. Thank you so much for spending time with
0: us, for pouring your everything into this. It totally shows, and I'm, I'm sure it was at once rewarding and very difficult. The show is unread. Chris Stedman, thank you so much for making this show and also sharing with us how you made it.
1: Yeah, thanks for giving me the chance to share a little bit more. As we, I was saying to you before we actually you know started doing this interview, I've done a few interviews about the show now, and they're always really hard, and I dread them because I'm having to sort of go back and reopen this wound. And it's nice to be able to talk about the sort of technical aspects of the show and and think about it from a storytelling perspective. So I just want to thank you for the opportunity to think about the show in another way. So thanks. (laughs)
0: Thank you so much for listening. You can find all episodes on our website and support the show by sending a friend there. It's threeclipspodcast.com. This episode was produced by Jude Brewer and our music is from Tyler Litwin. All of my work can be found at jayaconzo.com. Three Clips is a Castos original series. Castos is a software company that believes what I believe about podcasting. It's about resonance. It's about depth. It's about connecting more deeply with your audience in a world trending shallow. And so Castos offers two types of tools to the podcasters that they serve. Number one, hosting, distribution, and analytics software so you can get your show out into the world, measure it, and improve it. And number two, tools to help you develop private podcasts. So if you're a marketer who wants to serve your in-house team, or maybe you're a creator of some kind who wants to develop a passionate fan base, or even make money on subscription fees, you can create a private show to both reward and serve your audience more deeply. Learn more about both sets of tools at castos.com. That's C-A-S-T-O-S.com. All these links are in your show notes. And now it's time for our bonus segment. Every episode, we ask our guest for a podcast they'd recommend that isn't at the top of the charts. It's a show they'd like to show some love to. We call this Play It Forward.
1: The show I'd like to suggest is a podcast called Oh No, Ross and Carrie. It's made by a couple of friends of mine, Carrie Poppy, who, if you listen to Unread, uh, Carrie is actually in the narrative. She... Is an investigative journalist, and so when I was going on my search for Alice and trying to understand, you know, what the nature of her relationship was with Alex and how I might find her, Carrie was an indispensable resource, and she's an incredible investigator. And Oh No, Ross and Carrie is a show she she makes with another friend of ours, Ross, where they do investigations into different kinds of claims that people make. So they have to do with health fads, with spirituality, and they often will sort of try out these things themselves and, and really give them a, a sort of fair shake. So it's a really interesting show if that kind of subject is of interest to you. And they've been making it for many years. And again, Carrie is kind of like the original podcaster in my life. She's been doing it for so long and definitely recommend her show to anyone who is interested. So again, it's called Ono oh Ross and Carrie.
0: All right, that's it for this episode. I'm Jay Akunzo and I believe making meaningful work is not about who arrives. It's about who stays. So thanks for staying with me and I'll talk to you every Monday with a brand new episode of the show. Until then, keep making what matters. See ya.